all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 325 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the acetaminophen and oxycodone hydrochloride episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that there happens to be a pill that is a combination of acetaminophen and oxycodone hydrochloride. And that pill is called the RP5-325. And with that wonderful little bit of acetaminophen and hydrocodone, oxycodone, hydrochloride knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim! who has been waiting for the episode when good old acetaminophen would get a shout-out of some sort, <laughs> would get its recognition. Because, you know, everybody uses acetaminophen. They sure do. Unless, unless they're for allergic. some reason they're like, yeah, I was about to say, unless they're allergic to it or something. As you listeners well know, we have been in contact back and forth with uh, a group of filmmakers who... um produced a movie who actually directed and produced a movie called what doesn't kill us and we actually as a very special bonus to our normally have just one bonus segment this week there's two bonus segments because yeah let's let's just get into that we actually uh got to talk with uh jacob and zach uh two of the three co-directors of what doesn't kill us and that is what we're going to jump into now. I, I was really excited um, to get to interview these guys, and we get to talk a little bit about the making of the movie and where it all came from, and the fact that, yes, yes, this movie is a Texas movie. It's a Texas movie all the way around, even though Zach and Jacob are in Los Angeles now. But that's neither here nor there, right? <laughs> but without further ado... Here it is, folks, the interview with the creators of and direct co-directors of What Doesn't Kill Us. East Texas, where the Bible Belt begins and where all your problems end. Keith, well, he's, he's been a real surprise for us. Sometimes his, his condition can uh, provide for some awkward situations. Must be a proud father. Aw. Oh. Run everywhere or we shamble. I mean, we don't just walk at normal speed. Come to my game and you will see how fast I am. He'll be the first Necro Sapien athlete to actually make some noise nationally. You can barely hit it out of the infield. That's a pretty big deal. Oh, yeah, we only eat meat. We don't brush our teeth. We are completely impotent. Necro Sapiens can mate. I mean, there are enough of us around now. Have you now or at any time had issues with sperm production? I don't think so. Walker. Spider, and Brave Crawler, the infected. <laughs> Definitely not one of those guys that gets offended by the Z word. Is that the zombie fella? It's not a zombie movie. What up, zombie? Don't make us angry. We have a really bad temper. Yeah, temper. Good temper. Um, some refund or something. Right? Well, we don't do refunds. You know what? You better do refunds. <laughs> Another strikeout. You can see the frustration on his face. We're in the middle of a war. Have some self-respect. After I graduate, we're moving in together. 
Jack. Oh, you know what they say. It doesn't kill us, only makes us stronger. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it has finally happened. It is time. It is time to actually have a real live interview with real live filmmakers because they were kind enough to search us out on the internet and say, hey, watch our movie. And as we all know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Did you like that segue? Was that a good segue, guys? Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> that- <laughs> I'm sure you've seen better. Yeah. All right. So what we who, who we, we have here with us, uh, Zach Schlapkohl and Jacob Kiesling who are two of the three co-directors, along with Ethan Cartwright, of What Doesn't Kill Us, which is a zombie mockumentary. And it is, of course, about rehabilitated zombies facing the adversities of living in a time where they aren't yet considered socially equal. Now, we went back on episode 321, so this was just about four weeks ago. Uh, we actually covered this on the show and had a good conversation. Tim and I had a good conversation about it. And I, as I understand it, gentlemen, the, the, the show was well received. Yeah, so far so good. And, uh, that was big for us is because first, you know, we kind of just, we got to get ourselves on board, just make sure that we know that we have a good movie. And, uh, it was a long process to, uh, to get to that point because we, First off, we just show the people that we know, friends, family, and everything, and you never know if they're going to be, you know, just sweet-talking you or not. Um, But, you know, as we kind of sent it out to reviewers and uh, podcasters like yourself, um, it continued to be well-received, fortunately enough. Yeah, my my worst fear was having, like, my entire family look at me in the eye and go, oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Really, I like that. Well, I mean, it... It is really interesting. I, I think. I think the real challenge, aside from coming up with the genesis of the of this idea and putting yourself out there, sometimes I feel it is harder to put yourself out there for your close friends and your family than it is to just try and throw something against the wall and see if it sticks. Because while it's important, I think to make quality to make a quality film or to do anything with quality, so that it's well received in the short run. At the end of the day, you can at least, to a certain extent, write off people as not, you know, haters or anything like that, but, but people who may not understand or appreciate what you guys are trying to do. When it comes to your family and your friends, their opinions really matter, right? Right. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot of parallels with that in, uh, podcasting as well oh sure i mean it's all entertainment absolutely it's all entertainment but i am i am desperate to to ask this question what was the genesis of this idea was this just a college project that that kind of gained a life of its own or was this something that you two set out to actually sit down and write a script and then out came a movie what happened a mixture of both those things you actually just said uh there's a short film out there somewhere that we did it when we were freshmen in college. Way, way low budget, uh, awful makeup. Uh, yeah, we're proud of it and we're not proud of it at the same time. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it was, was the inspiration for it for sure. And then you know, encroaching on our senior year of college, you know, it was like the perfect window of this is the most experience we've ever had making films, and we won't be able to access equipment next year. You know, so those those two. 
those two things just merged at the exact point in time when we were ready to write a script. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like as far as just coming up with the concept goes and everything, it's, it, it really was just sort of like a back and forth between us. And it was, it, that's all it, that all, that's all it was supposed to be was just, uh, just sort of a short film concept, just to kind of, you know, have fun, get it, get a grade for having fun basically. Sure. Um, and, if I may ask, how long was the original short film? It was probably a rough eighteen minutes, something like that. Yeah, like too okay. long, should've, too long for been sure. Three. Yeah, yeah. But then it was just a matter of we knew that you know making movies is what we wanted to do, so you have to start sometime. And um, you know, th- the idea was to just get going. Even though we were still in college and we were we were dealing with grades, of, we we were balancing full time jobs um, and working on other people's short films too. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't the greatest time to start, but you know we, we sort of figured out that there is there is no great time to start. You just you just have to start. <laughs> and um, uh, absolutely, it's like getting a dog. <laughs> ex- <No>. Yeah. <laughs> Or having kids, depending on where you, <laughs> right, you know, right, yeah. where you want to go with that. So something that uh, Tim and I have had some experience with, and definitely way more Tim than me, uh, in is in the script writing department. Um, Tim is t- Tim has done some cool stuff in his life with school and stuff and beyond. And something that we inadvertently wrestled with um, was really trying to come up with the difference between a spec script and the shooting script. And when you guys were transitioning from your short film to the feature length, did you modify your original short film script or did you actually go into just a full shooting script right off and then just work that to your short film or make that into the feature length? How did you guys approach that? Uh, well, really, the uh, the only similarity between the short and the feature is the concept. You know, there are no overlapping characters, unless it's a minor one that I'm, I'm missing. But I think I think we named um, one yeah. one of the characters the same. But as far as the character itself, it was nothing yeah. like the the short film. We were constantly riding around our resources. So you know, the actors in it were either theater actors, uh, local like adult uh, theater actors from the town next over, or uh, friends we knew. Uh, you know, right example is Keith, the main guy. His name is Peyton Paulette. He was our, he's a grad student at SFA at the time, and he was really gracious and down to help us out. And we're like, okay, well, let's write a character that he doesn't have to try too hard to play, other than just being a good actor <laughs> playing himself. It was very, very much just a lot of people doing us favors and us writing, writing scenes and locations that we knew we could get, with uh, people we knew we could get. Yeah. Well, and that was actually something that I was uh, really impressed with in terms of the technical aspects of the shooting and stuff. For instance, I know that you guys were shooting at a Hungry Howie's in one of the scenes there. And I mean, and, and you're able to, I think people, and again, we, we know this mainly because I'm in Texas and yeah. they, they shot, they shot in a, in a, in a place they hadn't heard of and heard from in a long time, not going nowhere. And, um, <laughs> And so, and and a lot of times you'll see locations and things in the film that you might recognize, but something that was really cool was how you were able to make the shot work for the script, for the story, um, and disguise it in such a way that 
unless someone literally already knew what it was, they're not going to know. So, I mean, how long did it take for you guys to come up with those, with the ability to, to alter that stuff? Did you, I mean, did you just happen to know the manager there and he was like, oh yeah, come on in, shoot for the day or how did that uh, Well, one of us in this room right now delivered pizzas for Hungry Howie's for a year in college. I mean, not, not for nothing, but, you know, delivering pizzas isn't oh, exactly Mark a terrible knows. thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's not, it's not a terrible thing. It's, it's a good way to make money. Yeah. Oh, man. We uh, yeah. share in the same blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's funny you mentioned that, though. Uh, I, w- I was working there my senior year in college, and uh, my manager there, Mark, is actually the guy who plays the volunteer center in charge employee. Uh, oh, Sam. okay. He was, and you know, another guy that we're like, he was a, he's a big movie guy. So you know, every every week I was asking, hey man, can I have this day off because we got to shoot this scene? He's like, when are you gonna put me in your movie? And like, well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's just, a just good way to guarantee that goodwill. <laughs> I mean, for sure. You know, hey, yeah, boss. Uh, yeah, your, your your big scene's coming. I, I promise. I promise. <laughs> He he was awesome though, like because he was he was ended up being like one of the most like fun people that we would have on set because he was just so enthusiastic yeah. <laughs> through throughout it. Okay, now you mentioned, and this is something that I was also curious about, just kind of curious about uh, on the whole, and maybe people who aren't really sure what all goes into even a, a small production and an independent production. You say that a lot of people were helping you out with, you know, favors and obviously, hey, my boss, you know, said, hey, you can have this time off, but when am I in the movie? You know, all this kind of stuff that really helps with that. So in terms of your actual budgeting, did you actually come across actors where you were, you know, giving them a little bit of where you actually had a budget to hire a few actors and actresses or was it really all strictly... The money we have is for the equipment and the and the and the actual location, and everybody's volunteering to help out. Well, it's fair to say we knew every single actor. Excuse me, I'm not talking to you. Uh, <laughs> going into it, but we did pay the probably the main four, five plus Ray, the baseball coach. As yeah. pretty much uh, Ray drove in from out of town, so we we you know, and he's a great actor, so we definitely wanted to make his time worth it. But the main characters, I think the main four, uh, we got them gas money. Yeah, we got them. We got we gave them enough money that they would feel guilty bailing on us, pretty much. Because <laughs> that's that's what it was. Yeah, because they were doing hey. us tremendous favors, and every every day putting oatmeal on Keith or on uh, Peyton's face, I was thinking, man, one of these days he's just not going to respond to this text. And uh, he's he's such a good sport, and he's he's made so many movies of his own that. You know, the, he always said yes, but it took more time for him to respond every time. One more day, we would have lost him. Uh, <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, it, I, I think it, it does seem like everybody really, um, it, it truly does seem like everybody really had a good time doing it. Like it, it just kind of you get the vibe from all the people who are there that they really enjoyed their time. And it, I, that's not to say that there aren't challenges. It's not to say that there aren't times when it was like, you know, why the hell did I say yes to this? These are people putting oatmeal on my face every day. Um, oatmeal is for eating, not for wearing. We learned that when we we're, you know, three years old. <laughs> um, and, and that's actually kind of interesting. So that, which goes to your VFX. I know that you are 
you're you're overall happy with what you've got and that you this is what you're submitting to festivals and whatnot um and yet there is you know a couple of areas of polishing that you you know that you mentioned in your press screener that you know you would like something that most people aren't going to notice did you find that your special effects budget in and of itself did you find that you kind of went all in in the beginning and just used products till you ran out were you finding ways to improve the makeup as you went along or did you just kind of have a formula and you stuck to it we definitely exhausted a lot of our budget on a kind of pre-made scabs and wounds and and liquid latex and that kind of stuff which is what you're seeing on screen and then we definitely we we use a lot of man hours desaturating skin, masking out different mats. So anything color wise was all post, and anything like you know tactical you can actually see. That was a big part of our budget. You know it was pretty much pizza for the set, mm-hmm. getting our main actors, and then all that, all those like liquid liquid excuse me liquid latex and paste ons and bullet holes and wounds and. Yeah. And you know, that's the that's the most amazing thing about today is that you, you know, you can go you can just get a program like After Effects or really you can mm-hmm. even do so much in Premiere and just like do all of these things that you know, that look incredible as long as long as you take the time to uh to do it properly. Like you can you can do these effects that big budget movies back in the day just couldn't even you know, couldn't even think of unless they were to do it practically. And that was that was really big for us, you know, it's just knowing what we could do in post. Um, because cause Zach and I, I mean, we we both are, are pretty savvy when it comes to, you know, just knowing our limitations as far as and what we can do um, in post. So it was always, we were always thinking like whenever we were on set, we can't, you know, we can't buy a billboard, right? But but in post, if we keep right. the camera still, we put it on sticks, um, we make sure nothing crosses in front of it that's too crazy, um, we can we can make that billboard say whatever we want. Um, sure. And then, um, you know, the, the other big thing for us was, you know, very early on, I, you know, we, we pretty much always were planning to do the zombie effects in post, um, the, yeah. the big, the big bulk of the zombie effects, hopefully you can't really tell. Um, but that, that was the idea was that we can't, we don't have a professional makeup artist. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're not professional makeup artists ourselves. Um, and we, most of the times we didn't even have the time to properly put the makeup on them anyways. Um, so doing it in post was always something that, that we knew we were going to do. And, um, you know, we, we, we knew what we had to do, but we didn't necessarily know the extensive workload that that was going to put on us. It's just as far as like hours put into that. Sure. You know, we absolutely making this movie was a learning process in pretty much every way for us. But, um, you know, we, uh, we were going through some weird transitions, um, you know, just life transitions. Like we graduated, I got married, Ethan got married, Ethan got greenlit for another movie i moved to los angeles like before that we moved home zach moved to los angeles so there was a lot 
in between us and finishing this movie. Well, it's it's it is interesting that you bring that up though, because with with all the different ideas, you guys have three. Okay, so this this question is kind of twofold. You guys have three different co-directors, even though you share a vision. There's three different directors going on, um, and then generally, when you get to even I would say even to a certain extent, larger independent productions, and definitely as you get into major motion pictures and whatnot. The editing duties are very often sent to someone that is not the director. And that's not to say the director is not going to have input or anything like that, but you'll find that your editing gets moved to another person who is part of that vision, but really helps clean some things up. With three different directors and doing the editing and the post on your own, were there... Were there challenges that you did not see coming with that? Yeah. I mean, the, the biggest one was was time. Like, just how much time this was going to take with a, uh, a two-man crew in post. Um, you know, and then and that was really the big thing for us was just how, how much attention the editing process actually needs. Um, because... It, it's it's really it's it's kind of easy to tell um you know a a a low budget kind of do it yourself movie from a professional film and and you, and it's hard to say what those things are that makes a feature like a pro- fully produced feature film um, different than just some low budget, um, um, you know, project that you, that you're just, you know, hoping and praying that you get done. Um, but a big, you know, a big, a big part of that is sound. Like just how much time it actually takes to put in every single footstep, every single like move of the clothes. Um, and then of, you know, s- stuff like color grading um, just to make sure that it like that every frame looks professional, um, and then uh, also like it's pretty specific to ours, but the uh, the zombie effects because that was uh, something that Zach literally put thousands of hours into. I'm not I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Like he's he's put well over a thousand hours into masking around. So every every zombie in the movie, every inch of skin that you see on them, like mm. every frame was masked around their skin. So you you have a hand, you have like you have five fingers there. A lot of the times you have to you have to mask around each one of those fingers for every single frame. And there's twenty four so, frames so there's, in each. So what second. you're saying is there's there's no uh, there's no copy and paste. No. <laughs> we we looked for it. <laughs> there are some scenes you can get away with it. Uh, we did it in Da Vinci, and they've got like a color qualifying option. So if you know the skin tones are just drastically different than the background or wherever your character is, it'll pretty right. much do it for you. But oftentimes that was not the case. You so. you wouldn't believe how 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 many walls and carpet and just anything yeah. else is skin tone <laughs> that's pretty <laughs> it's like funny. it's like photoshop but yeah four times a second Clo- clothes included <laughs> oh my gosh like if yeah. some you know somebody's you know it, it's and, just everything and the uh, the biggest uh you know the one of the biggest challenges of the post process is that 
both Jacob and I. He's, he did a lot, most of the sound. I did most of the effects. But we're also learning how to do this in real time. So it was a lot of trial and error. Mm-hmm. Right on. Well, okay, so then that, that actually leads into another question. So it seems that you guys definitely maintained a shared vision, which is good because creative differences can kind of, you know, sabotage a production unnecessarily. So did you, were, were you able to find, like you just noted, you know, um, Zach's doing the sound, Jacob, right? You're doing the VFX or other way around? Pretty much the other way around for the most part. Okay. Sorry yeah. about that. Okay. So we're, we're, you're, so you're already splitting duties. So did you find that it was in certain shooting situations that, Hey, you go run off and uh, shoot the stuff at the Hungry Howies. I'm going to go do that pickup shot of the Chick-fil-A just so that we have it and meet back later. Or was everything kind of done in such a way that you're, you guys were constantly shooting together? There were a few examples of that, uh, especially more so the like you know the B-roll pickup stuff. You know, say, hey, I need 30 more minutes to get the actual footage here uh, before our camera batteries die. Can you go downtown and get the shot? That's pretty much how it works. But, you know, probably 95% of it we were all together for. Yeah. And there was, um, yeah, there's some select stuff and like the uh, the apocalypse footage. A lot of that I just shot in my hometown of Thorndale because yeah. I was just, I was just there. I had the bodies. I had a camera. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of shot it there. You got some stuff like in Dallas. Yeah. Anytime you see like a, a shot of a billboard or a restaurant or a sign or Stuff like that. It was pretty much me knowing, like, you know, <laughs> going to places I knew in Dallas that would let me just get an exterior real quick. and Yeah. Then... But pretty pretty much the, the story-heavy stuff, we were, we were both there for. Yeah. You know, like, pretty much all the way through. Um, you know, even, even in the pickups that we got here in Los Angeles. Um, you know, like, because we, we just wanted to be involved. You know, because um, we uh, we found a really good workflow between us. And, um, you know, with just between us and then Ethan as well being on set, like us three just separate minds of going towards the, uh, you know, this, the, the same goal that, um, you know, that brought forth a lot of a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah. And on set, we were all all three of us were a little naive and passive to not assign ourselves specific roles but we all kind of fell into them naturally mm-hmm. well that's good that's awesome so i know that you are submitting to film festivals and things of that nature right now have you had any luck yet are you are are there or is there like if you had a if you, you know you're you, you you guys are king for a day you rule the universe you get to put yourself into anything which one which film festival would that be and or are you having any success with your submission so far? Well, uh, I think ideally, we the first thing we'll hear back from, the first festival would be Dances with Films here in Los Angeles. But another big one that we want to get into is Austin, uh, yeah. you know, for local reasons, and it's a big one in Texas. But we, we actually, we finished our movie in the exact, like, worst week of the year for festivals because, you know, fall had just passed. And there's this sure. long, and you know, fall had passed, and then we had missed all the deadlines for the spring festivals. So we had to wait several months just to apply, just to hit the early deadline. Yeah, but it was also like like these things, you know, stuff like that just happens for a reason. Yeah. You know, because even throughout that time, we found ourselves really busy. Um, 
you know, just like kind of touching up the film still in just ways that, you know, we didn't think we were going to get to. And then um, just actively promoting the movie as well during that time. Um, but as far as festivals go, there's still the plan. The ultimate plan is distribution in some way. Um, you know, we're just, you know, this is being our, this is being our first movie and everything. We get distributed to some platform. That's a big win for us. So that's the idea behind these festivals is to, to, um, you know, meet, meet those, uh, meet a sales rep or meet a, meet a producer, meet a distributor that can, that can get us onto one of those platforms. Um, and, um, so, you know, as far as the submissions go yet, we have uh, we have yet to receive um, a no and yet to receive a yes, so we're still looking oh, forward to it. It's kind of the worst of all. You're left in limbo there. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think we're that is a bummer. It's a good way to look at it. All right. Well, um, is there anything else that you'd like to tell us before we wrap up here? Um, well, I mean, I would just say if you even find yourself slightly interested in the movie check out the website you'll find everything that you kind of need to see there and then as well as links to our social media on facebook and twitter that's at wdku movie um, and then the uh, website is wdku movie.com so if you like the premise just follow us there and eventually you will have an opportunity to see the movie and uh, that's what we want we want you to see the movie you know so we're going to make it easy for you to do that yeah, and hopefully it'll be at a uh, festival near you, and even you know more hopefully a streaming service near you. That's the goal. Mm-hmm. Right on. All right. A streaming service near you. That was. What, was, what, am, I, what am I thinking? <laughs> hey, man, it, it could it also be near you. I was going to pass it up. I was going to be like, right, Zach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good job. You wrote this <laughs> thing. Good God. <laughs> All right. Well, Jacob, Zach, thank you so very much uh, for joining us here on the SLS cast. Uh, again, this is Zach Schlapkohl and Jacob Kiesling, uh, who, along with Ethan Cartwright, who could not be with here, uh, be with us uh, this evening, are the co-directors of What Doesn't Kill Us, the zombie mockumentary that you will hopefully be seeing as soon as possible. Uh, Zach, Jacob, thanks again for joining us. And uh, please keep us updated on all of the happenings, especially if there's anything we can help you with promotion-wise as well. Absolutely. Thanks yeah, for having us. Yeah, thank you so much, Matt. All right. Jacob and Zach, WDKUMovie.com. Be sure to check them out over there. Uh, it's a, again, just a great group of guys. They're very nice, very down to earth. It was a, it was wonderful to get to talk with them. And I hope we get to do it again soon. Riveting discussion. Oh, yes. I was on the edge of my seat <laughs> the whole time. As well you should be, <laughs> sir. As well you should be. I guess though, we need to get to the heart and soul of this week's program which is our own special bonus segment covering this week's movies, or movie per se, which is the copycat throwdown, right? Did you bring up Heart and Soul because Dumbo, at least the animated movie, just had so much heart and soul packed in its 63-minute runtime? Is that why you brought up Heart and Soul? I guess it's easier than trying to fit Baby Mine naturally. I can't segue Baby Mine like that very well. Yeah, that's true. Heart and Soul works a little better. (laughs) Then Heart and Soul it up.
It's it's the the copy copy cat cat throwdown throwdown. That's right. It's the copycat throwdown. Well, that's right. It's the copycat throwdown. Stop it! Stop it! No, no. Seriously, stop it. Oh, right. Like, stop repeating. Stop repeating. Right. Oh, okay. I'm gonna kick your ass. Throwdown. Throwdown. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so yeah, this week's uh, copycat throwdown uh, is 1941's Dumbo versus 2019's Dumbo. And uh, do we want to start them off in alphabetical or alphabetical? Listen to me. <laughs> in chronological <laughs> order. <laughs> or do you want to I mean, go? If we were going to do it alphabetical do order. First? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, would we have to take in consideration the 1941 and the 2019? <laughs> I don't know. So I guess we technically could do it alphabetical order, and it would still work I, chronologically. I, I suppose. I suppose. But yeah. So do we want to start with 1941, or do we want to start with 2019? What do you want to do? 1941. You heard the man, folks. 1941's Dumbo. Look out for Mr. Stork. He's got you on his list, and when he comes around, it's useless to resist. Remember those quintuplets and the woman in the shoe. Maybe he's got his eye on you. Dumbo, the little elephant who was all ears. But gossips discover the scandalous truth about the new arrival. Have I got a trunk full of dirt? <gasps> his mother goes wild. Down! Dumbo down! Socially, he was washed up. His only friend, a mouse. You know, lots of people with big ears are famous. Oh, oh boy. All we gotta do is build an act. Make your star. A headliner. Dumbo the Great. Walt Disney's Dumbo brings you a trainload of exciting new characters. Wild animals. Ferocious beasts. Thunderous pachyderms. Jungle giants. Casey Jr., the train with a personality. And believe it or not, the most delightful Disney sequence you've ever seen, the parade of the pink elephants. See Dumbo's magnificent fall to fame, the most sensational climax ever filmed. We got an American animated film produced by Walt Disney Productions, released by RKO Radio Pictures. It is the fourth animated feature film, and this one is actually based on a storyline written by Helen Aberson and Harold Pearl, and stars Edward Brophy, Herman Bing, Margaret Wright, Sterling Holloway, Verna Felton, and Cliff Edwards. Um, and of course, in this particular film, the title character of Dumbo does not have any spoken dialogue. Your main speaker in this film is Edward Brophy, who plays Timothy Q. Mouse. Um, this film was actually made, for those who are not aware, this film was made specifically as a way to recoup the losses from Fantasia. And so that is one of the reasons why, A, it is so incredibly short, and B, you might notice that the quality of the animation is, I wouldn't say substandard per se, but definitely not quite as crisp as perhaps what you may have been used to even in the previous um 
films, much less the, the remaining films surrounding that time. Yeah, this movie is the story of Dumbo, the uh, young Jumbo Jr. who has the extra large ears and doesn't feel like he can ever fit in and misfits and ends up, you know, figuring out that he can fly. I gotta be honest, guys, when I was growing up, this was not really my favorite animated feature. And it's not that I didn't like it. I just felt, you know, maybe by the time I had started watching, I was probably like 9, 10 in that area, between 9 and 11. So I, I felt like I was a little out of the age range, per se. And so it, it is a good movie, and I do enjoy it. But I also really did not like the pink elephant scene in this movie. I I don't know. Were it, you scared by it? I was not scared. I just simply didn't care for it. it. It's, I guess, I mean, for lack of a better term, you know, just kind of, I guess it kind of creeped me out a little bit. It didn't scare me. I never had nightmares, but it just seemed like Walt Disney's 1941 version of a PSA saying, this is why kids shouldn't drink. <laughs> After clowns? <Yeah. laughs> uh that apparently champagne mixed with water will still get you drunk. Um, I, I, but honestly, I, yeah, so, so that, that always kind of stuck with me. And it is kind of, and, and since it is about six minutes of a 64 minute movie, that's kind of a big chunk of the movie. And, um, and so, yeah, that, that, didn't really resonate with me growing up. I mean, I own it on Blu-ray now. The kids have watched it. Everybody likes the movie. And I really do think that the movie, I believe, for me at least, has aged really well. Um, I think that the message that the movie gives is good. And I know that even though there is some... That some people in later years have taken umbrage with The Crows. It is, It should be pointed out that uh, Cliff Edwards, who is the chief speaking crow, is actually a white guy. That there's still been some issue with that. I think wherever you land on, on, I guess whatever side of the fence you land on in, in regards to how you feel about the crows, um, that stuff notwithstanding, it is one of the more memorable music numbers in the film, and I think it's something that a lot of people point to as something that they do remember about the movie. I think that the heart and soul of the movie, the baby mind of the movie, if you will, um, definitely manages to have a stronger resonance in the, in this 1941 version. Um, I really do like this one. I, I, even though it's not my favorite, even though I wasn't super huge into it when I was a kid, I gotta say, this is a pretty, this is a pretty strong, uh, production. There's a reason, and I think that's one of the reasons why it was put into the Library of Congress. So, or, I'm sorry, National Film Registry, which is housed in the Library of Congress. So, I guess whatever. I don't know. What do you think, Tim? Where, where, how do you feel about it? Well, do you, I mean, I wanted to ask you, yeah. and since you brought up the crows, uh, do you personally think or find it offensive? Because, I mean, for what they were going for, because I was it called like back chattering or back chatting. I, I don't remember the terminology, just like the back and forth dialogue the crows had with each other uh -huh. was very much in tune with like members of a band of a jazz band. You know, and right. and I thought it was. I mean, even as a kid, I just thought it was obvious that, to me at least, that's what they were trying to go for. 
And if I remember correctly, when they were animating the movie, they actually brought in two black guys who were part of a troupe, like part of a of a dancing troupe, and they used them to model the crows afterwards. Well, I mean, I, I think that... I, I, it's not that I believe it's low-hanging fruit, but I think that given the... I mean, if you remember even just with Fantasia, they're coming off of Fantasia, right? And there's some pretty disturbingly racist content in Fantasia, especially with the donkey and stuff like that. So uh, it, to the point where that has been pulled out and reanimated and stuff, it's been cut, edited, pasted, it's been reanimated so that you can't even see the original version of the movie if you go out and watch it now or if you go and buy it now. Um, and so you're coming off of that and landing into this troop of crows um, who, even if you depending on where you how you want to look at the physical production what people actually saw even in script in, in the production script the lead crow is referred to as Jim Crow um I, I think there are certain tendencies there that are easy to spot because of the time period because people are more inclined however there are defenders of the use of the crows because the crows are seen as free-spirited uh the crow the song that the crows sing, is actually very it's it's hyper intelligent it uses a lot of double speak and stuff uh that makes fun of timothy uh mouse it supports dumbo and they're actually the only they're actually one of the few groups of characters in the film that support dumbo wholeheartedly so i think that honestly it's just what you take of it i think it's what you take from it um i think it's important to be aware of the connotation that it could have, but I think that for me, I'm aware of the connotation that it can have, but I take from it, uh, I take from it mainly that the use of the song and the fact that it leads to Dumbo being able to find himself. So, um, I, I'm neither overtly for it nor want to denigrate it too badly, I guess. Sure. Like what you were saying before, Fantasia and Pinocchio bombed at the box office, and Disney was in crazy financial trouble at the time. And with Dumbo, they were forced to make the film shorter, smaller, and cheaper than any of the other films that came before it. What was interesting about the styles of all these films, including Dumbo, like Pinocchio was very detailed and refined. Like, if you go and you watch Pinocchio, just like the movement and whenever the camera or you're looking at the frame in one shot, you see Pinocchio running down an alleyway, a cobblestone alleyway. The perception of him running down that alleyway, it's like a really neat old school 3D effect done by very detailed and nuanced animation. Bambi is known for capturing real, authentic animal movement with the deers, with uh, Thumper, the rabbit, and all those other animals. Fantasia was a great leap forward in animation as well. Dumbo is definitely the most emotional of all these films. And because Dumbo was made to be shorter, smaller, and cheaper... They focused on the storytelling. They set out to make a film that wasn't going to be an animation marvel, but they wanted 
it to be a storytelling Marvel with a lot of heart. So they took time to really develop the story of the film. So there were no really animation sequences that they had to either get rid of later on because they weren't meshing well with the script or with the story, or because they just didn't have time to finish them. They took the time to really craft this film so that they knew exactly before starting the film what the product was going to be exactly. And to save money, the photos, the background photos of certain scenes, like landscapes and whatnot, were actually oil paintings. With this film, with Dumbo, they used less elaborate special effects. You know, like Bambi took Disney, what, nine years to make? Dumbo took a much shorter amount of time. Definitely not nine years. During Bambi, of course, Dumbo was in development, so all the, the nine old men were working on Bambi, and so it was their protégés who went on to work on Dumbo. And these were the protégés who were working on the Silly Symphony cartoons. So a lot of people, when they watch Dumbo, they like to comment on how much of a cartoon it comes across as. Well, it's because those animating the film are the ones that animated the cartoon Disney shorts, the Silly Symphonies. So that right there gave this film a totally different look when comparing to all the other Disney films that came before, and even a number of the Disney films that came after as well. Disney was also under a lot of pressure with Dumbo because World War II was really gearing up. Um, the U.S. at this time was thinking about joining World War II. With the Nazis and everything going off over there, they just weren't receiving the box office attention overseas. So when they were setting out to make this film, they were making it for North American and South American audiences. What I really like about Dumbo are all of the different influences. At the time, in the late 30s, surrealism was very popular. Salvador Dali, for example. Because of that influence, we had the Pink Elephants on Parade sequence, Matt's favorite sequence. You know, it is a parody of surrealism. The film is also influenced by German Impressionism and all those German Impressionist films. For example, The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary. In Dumbo, you see a lot of shadows. A lot of the German Impressionistic films use a lot of shadows. It was very eerie and it create a nice mood and atmosphere and take a look at like Dumbo, Miss Jumbo, if you will. Whenever she's sad because she's not with her son, with her child, she's always in the shadows. And there's also a lot of symbolism with the bars and then with the clothing being bars or striped. And you just get the feeling that both Dumbo and Dumbo's mom is just surrounded by a cage, you know, or, or, or kept in captivity at all times, even if they're not in captivity during the time that they are separated. Baby Mine and the score were both nominated for Oscars. Dumbo, luckily, was a box office hit. And one of its main achievements was that it definitely gave escapism to a lot of Americans at the time, you know, because of course the United States was on the brink of war with the Nazis. And after Dumbo, Disney Studios blew up. Dumbo ended up being the last film where, where Uncle Walt actually felt, where he actually felt like he was one of the animators. And the animators considered him a fellow animator because he would come in and sit down with the animators and discuss things and yada, yada, yada. It felt like it was a group effort putting Dumbo together. And of course, afterwards, with all the other princess flicks, 
Disney became more corporate and he was head of that corporation. So Dumbo is a very special film, not only in cinema, in animation history, in Disney history, but it holds a special place in my heart. I grew up watching Dumbo. I have a lot of very embarrassing memories while watching Dumbo. There's just something absolutely charming and emotionally distressing about the film. The mom wants a baby. (laughs) And you see how much she wants this baby at the start of the movie when the stork is dropping off all the little babies and all the other pens around her. Babies are being delivered, but not hers. And she finally gets her baby elephant. And regardless of the elephant's ears, it's okay. You know, she loves Dumbo for who he is, for who it is. If it's even a boy or if it's a girl, I am not entirely too sure. There's just like this crazy, wonderful connection between the two of them. And it is heartbreaking, especially as a child. I guess one could call me, as a kid, more of a mama's boy. So it just, you know, it affected me in certain ways that didn't affect really other people. And the movie is actually very harsh. Definitely more harsh than the uh, Tim Burton film. For example, there's a lot of quotage going on where people are taunting Dumbo and just being mean, saying things like, Ears only a mother can love. Or the fellow elephants are saying, where the mom elephant can overhear this, His disgrace is our own shame. I mean, these elephants were freaking harsh to their own kind. It was horrible. You know, it's just kind of like that sense of reality as a kid where you're reminded of there being awful people in this world. Yeah, I just really like Dumbo, the animated film. There Again, it's charming. And there's just something about the theme, what the film is trying to get across. There's just something about it that sticks with you. And I haven't seen this movie in many, 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 many years. And so many childhood memories washed over me while watching it. All right, well then, let us move very quickly into... 2019's Dumbo, 78 years later. Welcome, baby Dumbo. We're all family here, no matter how small. back inside but she's his mom do something he needs us look at me we're gonna bring your mama home he doesn't look like magic to me your children need you to believe in them you can do it dumbo sure Baby 
All right, well, now we've got a 2019 American fantasy film directed by Tim Burton with a screenplay by Aaron Kruger. This, of course, is inspired by the 41 version, but definitely tells its own version of this story. Uh, film stars Colin Farrell, Michael Keaton, Danny DeVito, Eva Green, and Alan Arkin. Uh, along with um, Nico Parker and Finley Hobbins, who play the children of Colin Farrell and the more direct champions of Dumbo in this version. Uh, so this movie takes place in 1919, which is, uh, of course, right after the uh, First World War. Colin Farrell uh, plays Holt. Uh, Captain Holt Farrier, who is a um, uh, basically a horse rider, and he's coming back to find to, to basically reestablish his life with the circus that he has always worked with. Um, the circus, however, has fallen on hard times. His wife has passed away while he was gone. He lost an arm in there, and so he's kind of estranged from his kids. And he has lost his horses, and he kind of ends up on the elephant work where Dumbo is born. And, of course, big years and adventures ensue, shenanigans ensue as Dumbo learns to fly. And this time takes a completely different path than the original film, and instead branches off and does its own thing entirely. Um, Tim mentioned in his, <clears throat> I guess, brief encapsulation that he thought it was a good movie. I, um, at least on Twitter, he had mentioned, you know, it was a good Tim Burton movie. And I, of course, when I, I, I did the retweet thing with a comment and I noted that it, it was good that one of us is going to use the word good without using the word not because this movie, for me, is not good. Um, my wife and I actually snuck off last night and had an impromptu little movie night, date night thing. And so we went and watched it together, and even she didn't like it. Um, I think this movie is a fantastic kids movie. I think that children will love this movie and have a good time with it. Because it is a vastly oversimplified version of a fantasy film that a kid can understand. Beyond the target audience of children, I personally don't really see much of anything in it for adults. Uh, I will, however, grant you that the special effects are decent overall. Uh, I, I mean, especially when it comes to Dumbo. I like the Art Deco and New Wave um, architecture and everything that plays into the second, uh, into the second and third acts of the film. I kind of like this sort of twisted version of Disneyland that is made available. This 1919 kind of retro futurism version of Disneyland that is available. Which is very much what Walt Disney kind of had in mind in the 40s, it seemed like. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that you also have a really good cast who are doing the best they can with a just, in my opinion, abhorrent script. Everything about the movie, especially the first act, is 100% rushed and, I think, completely atrocious. 
Um, every character is designed to simply, you know, fill a particular slot in the story. Like, up, oh, we need our reluctant hero. Up, oh, we need our heart of gold, um, hard-headed manager guy oh we need the precocious children slot oh we need our um evil hillbilly guy who who's got to make mom angry um we need to figure out how to make dumbo fly fast and set it up this way we need a villain uh, whose Midas touch and um, myopic way of life converge to create a third act. Every single thing in this film is just built from a horrendous thing, and not even Tim Burton's direction could save it. I don't. Uh, I will, however, say that the music is very good. Danny Elfman, as 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 always, on point here. Uh, but the, but it's just outside of things for kids. Uh, it's, it's just not there. Um, I'm not going to say that this is some kind of misfire on the part of Disney. Uh, you know, you got to think the budget here is approximately $170 million. I am pretty sure that at the end of the day, they'll break even. I could see this getting worldwide of about, you know, 500 million. I think it's going to take some time, but, uh, you know, I, I just, it's just not a good movie. I think it's a great kids movie, but not a good movie overall. Um, so I guess it should be easy to tell my clear winner is 1941's Dumbo. But Tim, I know that you enjoyed the movie, so I'm, I'm actually really interested in hearing, um, where you defer on this one. So what do you got, sir? Well, I can't help but thinking about A Wrinkle in Time, the movie that came out last year, two years ago? I forgot. No, no, and it's this year. I, uh, I'm sorry. About a year ago this time. About, okay, yeah. Which one do you prefer? Did you like Wrinkle in Time more than Dumbo? Jesus, or if you're going to you make me pick one, uh, Dumbo. I'll take 2019's okay. Dumbo over Wrinkle in Time. Okay, that's good. Now, Ava DuVernay directed A Wrinkle in Time, and... That movie, I, A Wrinkle in Time to me, is a prime example of a huge misfire. Just nothing worked. Whatever charm that's in the story, in the novel that the movie is based on, just did not carry over to the film. I never read Dumbo, the book Dumbo. I've only seen the animated film. I went into Tim Burton's film reminiscing on my affection towards the animated film and all the different times I've watched it as a kid. What the movie does incredibly well is capturing the spirit and the reason why we all love Dumbo in a more grounded, realistic-ish way. What all the Disney movies are doing now, except with Aladdin and except with The Lion King, what they've been doing, uh, well, I guess except with Beating the Bees, but with like Cinderella, Peach Dragon, this film, is that they're wanting to remake some of their animated films, but they want it more grounded. So the talking animals and the overly characteristic animals are more like just animals. 
Dumbo had enough personality, and Dumbo's mom had enough personality, that it was charming. And the biggest problem with this film, Dumbo easily could be considered a supporting character. Because the film focuses on the adults for like the first half of the movie, it seems like. I couldn't care less about the dead mom because I couldn't care less about these kids. They didn't feel like a family to me. I like Colin Farrell, and I thought he was fine in the film, but there was just no real emotion for me to care. And then whenever their story had to connect with Dumbo's story, it just really didn't work. They brought Dumbo down with them. But when it's just focusing on Dumbo and all the different things that Dumbo has to overcome, I thought the movie works very well. It's still charming. It still has enough of that spunk that made me so into the original film. Like with any other Tim Burton movie, his version of Dumbo has great cinematography. For the, uh, well, maybe not cinematography, but great production design, I should say. I think the movie would have benefited if it wasn't as colorful during the whole Medici stuff. What would have been very interesting, because what Tim Burton does is that the whole Medici small town circus group, that's all bright and colorful and very countrified looking and, and not like the dark brooding Tim Burton look. And then when they get to Dreamworld, you know, Michael Keaton's villain world, you know, all that looks very futuristic, sleek and brooding. It would have been far more interesting if it were the other way around. Because I think maybe we could have felt more for these characters if they weren't living in such a jolly atmosphere. And I think it would have said something more about the characters when they had to overcome the charms of a colorful surrounding. I have a bunch of notes here, but that's kind of the gist of what I really wanted to say. Uh, again, when the movie focuses on Dumbo and Dumbo's story, it works. I think Dumbo learning to fly and flying fast and high, those scenes were fantastic. I felt for Dumbo and Dumbo having to go up, you know, getting scared of the height and having to jump off. It was wonderful. But then you had the little girl going up there to try to persuade Dumbo Ugh, it just, it did not work. Now, I would have been okay if, because you do have some mice in the film that are CGI, but if you had one of the mice, like the Timothy mouse, if that mouse was just a little, had a little bit more character, kind of like Dumbo, and that mouse kind of helped Dumbo a little bit without talking, obviously, I think that would have been much more convincing and satisfying than the little girl doing that, or the little boy. Because honestly... They just really had no personalities whatsoever. So, yeah, my winner between these two, my my pick between these two is the 1941 animated flick, the original. But I did enjoy Tim Burton's movie. If I were to rate it, I'd probably give it a three out of five, maybe a three and a half. I don't know. I left the theater, you know, feeling pretty good. Like, it wasn't a waste of money. I didn't feel like it was a waste of time. I enjoyed it. And I think it says something about Arcade Fire that they were able to make a much more livelier version of Baby of Mine to where you didn't feel like you had to grab the nearest sharp object and <laughs> stab yourself with it or slit your wrists with it, you know. That's funny. All right. Well, that's great. Okay. So then it uh, looks like we both have chosen 1941's Dumbo um, as the winner here. And... Um, 
I, I mean, to be honest, if I were to personally rate it, I would definitely give it a two. Um, but, but again, I, I am, I'm glad in this particular instance we're not doing official ratings on it because I do firmly believe that I think it's a, it's a fantastic kids movie. Um, right. And I really, and, and again, visually, I, I, I really don't have much to complain about. And I think honestly, that's probably why I gave it a passing grade because I was thinking of, like, if I had kids, if I had younger kids and they did not see the original Dumbo movie, I'm pretty sure they'd still feel some of those feelings I felt. Just maybe not, you know, 100%, not totally fleshed out. But, you know, there's still moments of it. It's interesting, at least in in our house, the kids have, in all of the ones where they've had a chance to see both versions, okay, so they, they haven't been able to do Dumbo yet, but... Um, they've seen, uh, both versions of Cinderella. They've seen both versions of Beauty and the Beast. Um, they're, they're, they are not as hard in ways. And again, because they're looking at it through kids' eyes, but, um, like for, for me, for instance, I was shocked two out of my three kids and I don't remember which two. Um, I don't remember which two. Two out of my three kids actually liked the new Beauty and the Beast better than the animated. Uh, and I'm just, I'm shocked. I'm like, how, how is this even possible? Um, <laughs> everybody, everybody likes both Cinderella's the same, but like, you know, if you really push them hard on it, they kind of like the, they, they like the, the newer version a little more. Um, but that one's a little, I mean, you know, that, that one's a little more even keel, I think, in terms of how well it's like. So, um, there, so it would not surprise me at all, even though they know and like the original Dumbo, it would not surprise me if they end up liking this Dumbo more. Um, so who knows? I mean, Disney has marketing geniuses for a reason, right? <sighs> but at any rate, I guess that brings us to the end of our, uh, of, of our segment of our copycat throwdown next week. We're also going to have a special copycat throwdown. We're going to be doing 1989's Pet Cemetery versus 2019's Pet Cemetery. So not a 78-year gap, but a 30-year gap. And um, I haven't seen... I'm actually really excited for this Pet Cemetery because I have seen like maybe 20 seconds of one teaser trailer for uh, for the new one. So I have, I'm, I'm excited to go into this one pretty much blind. And as long as I get some some form or fashion of I want to play with you, then I'm gonna be happy with this new one. I just that, <laughs> that's all that's all I need. So I guess without further ado, I think we're down to the spiel, are we not? Spiel on. Oh, Stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's going to catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama raised no dummies. I duck a rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. It's a cutting thing. Say, 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 say,
right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we have, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit1234. And of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down to my Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Another special thanks to Zach and Jacob from What Doesn't Kill Us, WDKUMovie.com. And if you'd like to find us, you can, of course, subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down to the old SoundCloud and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, you can always do that by heading over to Patreon.com and checking us out over there. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Alan Arkin, I get to say this. Either you're growing or you're decaying. There's no middle ground. If you're standing still, you're decaying. That's what we're doing all the time, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.